Good morning, good morning. Uh, I think it's safe to say that we are present in the Lord's house today because we have a God who's worthy of his name. Amen. When it seems like things are out of control in this world, and uh, for many of us, that can mean many different things. We have a God who's worthy of his name, a God who is in control, a God who sees you, a God who knows the number of hairs on your head. So we're just grateful to be in his house this morning, and we're going to continue in our study in the Gospel of Luke. We're in uh, chapter 6, verses 1 through 11, as our brother Matt just read for us. And so uh, usually when I'm getting ready to preach or teach something, especially just preaching to my you know, fellow believers at Imago Dei, uh, illustrations come easy as I'm trying to understand the, signif- the meaning and the significance of the text. But for this one, it was different. A- an illustration didn't come very easily. But the one thing that continued to come to mind was the hope and the prayer that I wouldn't just prepare a sermon for you all, but that I would take heed of it myself. And there's a, a quote, well, I'll, I'll say this. Um, if that doesn't make any sense to you, I'll introduce myself like this. Hi, my name is Walter, and I am a chronic overworker. <laughs> and this is a text about Sabbath. And so there you go. It's the secret's out. But as I was studying and thinking through the significance of this text, there's a quote that came to my mind that I read some 15 years ago from a book called The Reformed Pastor, uh, written by Richard Baxter in 1656. His target audience was pastors, but there's something to be said for growth group leaders, something to be said for parents. There's something here to be said for those who are leading others in discipleship, some, something to be said by those, for those preparing to go to the mission field or teaching in our discipleship hour. That's an hour and 15 minutes. And also, that's a joke for the, the IDC folks who come on this evening. Uh, anyway, so those who uh, are doing the good work of being a friend to others. And here's what the text says. It says, or the, 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 the quote says, Many a tailor goes in rags and maketh costly garments for others. And many a cook scarcely licks his fingers when he has dressed uh, for others the most costly dishes. And Baxter says, Take heed, therefore, to you, your, to yourselves first, that you may be what you persuade your hearers to be. And believe that which you persuade them to believe. And heartily entertain that sa- the Savior whom you offer to them. So as we are surrounding this text today, let's hear it and let's apply it. But even as we go on from this place, as we continue to do the good work of discipling, parenting, befriending those, let's also, as we are working under the Lord, uh, take heed to ourselves. And so let's just go ahead and jump into this text today. So uh, the, in the first uh, pericope we have here, the pericope is a fancy word for uh, a story is in the first five verses of this chapter. And Jesus here claimed to be the Son of Man and Lord over the Sabbath. And so the scene begins with the, Jesus and his disciples who are in a grain field plucking heads of grain. And so the first two verses read this way. It says, On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some of the grain, rubbing them, uh, to get, rubbing them in their hands. And some of the Pharisees said... Why are they doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? So where I come from, they just call this stealing. 
But here, in this passage, uh, at this time, there was verses like Deuteronomy 23, verses 24 to 25, that allowed travelers and those who are poor, widows, orphans, and others to glean from the edges of people's fields. And so this wasn't a matter of it being lawful. It was the fact that it was being done on the Sabbath. And so there's Jesus, his disciples on the scene, but there's also the Pharisees. And as we always find them, they're just mad because that's what they, they just mad all the time. So these are teachers of the law, and they were here uh, in this particular moment. They were not looking to learn from Jesus, but to catch him breaking the law of Moses. And so, what, so this is what we're seeing. Uh, before we go on too far, I do want to sort of drill down into the Sabbath real quick, because if we understand the Sabbath, we'll actually understand better what this, the rest of this text is saying. And so I want to start with the origins of the Sabbath. So the day of the Sabbath day was from Friday evening to Saturday evening, and all normal work ceased. The Sabbath was given to God's people as a sign of love to God. God didn't want to leave them alone to figure out what it meant to love him and love others. God said, here it is. This is the law. And so, and the Sabbath was a part of the law. And so the law is actually a very loving thing that God gave to them. And it actually did a wonderful thing. It made them a a people living in contrast with other nations. People can look at God's people and say, there's something different about them. And the thing that's different is that they had encountered God, Yahweh, as they'd say in the Old Testament. And so because they had this law, the way in which God wanted them to live, they would be a people set aside in contrast to others. And God had a vested interest in the success and the longevity of this nation because through this people, the Messiah would come. And so in Scripture, there's a rationale for a Sabbath day being on the final day of the week. And this is because God did rest. We see that in Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And on the seventh day, he rested, we see. This allows uh, Israel to have a pattern. Because God rests, Israel then therefore rests. Also affirmed again uh, in the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, it says, Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. So now that's its origin. Now it's its intent. The Sabbath was intended to be a time of rest and reflection for God's people, ceasing work to remember that time, the ability to work, and resources are all a gift from God. But unfortunately, the Sabbath became something else, and so now we'll see what it has become, you know, especially at this time. The rabbis interpreted the law. And then other folks interpreted their interpretations, and then those people also interpreted other interpretations, and this gets really ridiculous very quickly. You guys kind of see how that pattern works? Okay, well, that's how it works. So, um, and so in all of this, the Israelites, they were shackled by layers of interpretation that distorted what God intended for them. So the Pharisees used their rigid regulations to demonstrate just how spiritual they were over against others who didn't follow them as carefully. Which This sounds crazy, doesn't it? But we do the same thing today, don't we? We look at things that are a matter of discretion and that we're trying to apply. I mean, I'm not talking about the ethical implications of the law. Those are, those are set in, in, there, in stone. But, you know, the, the, there's things that we can apply with discretion. And then sometimes we look at how we apply it and against somebody else's application of it. And then we want to look down our nose and, at, at other people. You know, I, I know this is not really the case at Imago Day, But there are many uh, churches that have split over how to school their children. And so... 
the, the blessing at Imago Day is that we have folks who homeschool to God's glory. We have folks who send their kids to charter school, public school, uh, Christian schools, and so forth. And praise God. And what, what the, the blessing is is that we all encourage each other as we raise our children in the fear of the admonition of the Lord. And so this is a wonderful thing because our unity is not based upon anything besides the fact that we are in Christ. And so there's so much for us to worry about today. There's so much for us to have to defend against today. Let's let the main things be the main things. And that's what the Pharisees continued to miss. So I just want to give you a window into some of the uh, shenanigans, as I say, that the Pharisees would sort of put over people during the Sabbath. And so a Sabbath day's journey had to be less than 2,000 steps. So if you did 2001, you violated the law. And so, or, you know, um, if a house fell on somebody, granted, houses don't fall like this today, but if your house fell on you, if you're living at this time, if you were to be able to live, even though your house fell upon you, then you would be able to, basically, we will leave you there until the next day, because that would be breaking the Sabbath. Isn't that ridiculous? Somebody over here gets me, they started laughing. Yeah, that's crazy. And so this is, this is the kinds of interpretations of the law that were in place back then. And so now these are the sorts of people Jesus was dealing with. And now Jesus goes head to head with them in verses 3 to 5. And those verses say this. So Jesus answered them, have you not read? And by the way, they were Pharisees. Of course they had read. And so Jesus is like, man, I'm, I'm about to tell them. Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him... Uh, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which was not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So we have to understand what is going on with this reference to David. This is from uh, 1 Samuel chapter 21, verses 1 to 6, where David and his men were running for their life because King Saul wanted to kill him. And so they were hungry one day, and with the priest's approval, they ate the consecrated bread in the sanctuary uh, called the bread of the presence. And so just to give you some more background about the temple here, there were 12 loaves of bread, which represented the uh, God's attention and care for the tribes of the nation of Israel. And when the bread got stale, it was, there was new bread placed there, the old bread was given to the priest, and there's all kinds of symbolism in all of this that I'll spare you of for now. But suffice it to say that if you were to go against the, the way in which God set up the temple, you're basically risking uh, your life, taking your life into your own hands and risking divine judgment. So Jesus mentions this scene because David was never punished by God. And it allows, and it follows that if David was free of the law's restraints in this instance, how much more is the son of man? And so to, to uh, point this out, if they condemned Jesus, uh, they were then therefore condemning David, who has such a prominent place in Jewish life. And so they're also contradicting scripture itself. So the Pharisees didn't want to do either. And so let, let's try to get into the significance of, of this whole thing. And so the worship regulations can be set aside in a crisis, we're seeing, because David was not punished by God. But uh, God's moral law is never set aside. Things like adultery and robbery and murder, etc. So what was going on here? So the ceremonial law, the law that regulated worship, they were temporary. 
But the moral law is always in effect. So the ceremonial law, the laws that govern worship, will be in place until it's replaced by something else. So the question comes, what is going to replace the law? The ceremonial law. And Jesus was glad to answer the question. In verse 5, he says, uh, And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So the answer to the question was not what was going to replace the ceremonial law, but who was going to replace the ceremonial law. He's like, I'm here. I'm the Savior. I'm the one who fulfilled all of this. It all points to me. And he says, look, I'm here, and so we can do what we want to now. I mean, I'm getting excited up here. Not anything. Don't be crazy. Honor the Lord. Love others. But at the same time, you're not bound to all these interpretations of interpretations. And so what he's saying by this, he says, I fulfilled the law. I can give you the deep rest that you long for. You're trying to work your way into rest. This is foolish. Our souls have a need to find its maker, not religiosity. And our souls will never find rest until we find our rest in the Lord Jesus. And so Christians must remember that in Christ, you find rest because the ultimate work that you can never achieve you're on your, by yourself is done. Jesus did it. It's finished. In Christ, you're accepted. You don't have to work for that anymore. Don't be like the Pharisees striving and interpreting and striving and interpreting and laying this yoke of heavy burden on other people. When Christ has done it, Jesus says, Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So he's saying, I am the Lord of rest, is what Jesus is also saying in this. The only way to actually make Jesus the Lord of rest is to be satisfied that Christ is your Savior and then being able to then rest. Be satisfied with yourself. So this begins by, you know, even seeing God's example in Genesis. God created and he said it was good. And then God created and he said it was good. Even my kids, when we review the Bible story at night, you know, they see the pattern. God does something one day and at the end, it's good. And he said it was good. And this pattern needs to be the same pattern that we establish as we work. At the end of the day, we can actually be satisfied, but that satisfaction does not come with checking off every box on our to-do list or meeting all of our deliverables for the day. So you can actually not check off your whole list and go to dinner at home and not be distracted. You can actually be free of that because you have satisfied the one qualification that you need to be at peace with God through Jesus. And again, I started the sermon in a certain way because I need to take heed of this myself. This is something that I'm working on too. This text is so rich. God is satisfied with us through Christ. Now we need to be satisfied with ourselves. So, let's, so there's some that, that don't really get this. So you're prone to overwork. And so I think it's helpful for us to really unearth some of the reasons why we overwork a little bit, while we're never satisfied with ourselves. And so um, for some of us, it's all about money. This shows up in a couple of different ways. And so there is little to no joy in your workplace if you maintain a job just to get a huge paycheck. And so let's be clear, I'm not talking about those who work a job that they don't like because they're just trying to put a meal on the table. I'm talking about those who remain in high-paying jobs because they, they, because they feel like they have to sacrifice everything on the altar just for money. And also, 
Uh, There's an emphasis on money for those who overwork because they're trying to keep up a certain lifestyle that they now identified with. Being with these certain people, going on these kinds of vacations, there's people who are the most wealthy, who are the most financially strapped, who have gone from, hey, let's get a little car, a Mazda Miata, to, hey, I need to get a little car now, it's a Porsche 911. Hey, I, I want to go on a vacation to the mountains. The, the Appalachian Mountains, they used to work fine, but now the Swiss Alps are only okay for you. Some people said, let's get a home. We're just glad to have a home with the upstairs. And now we have to have a home with dual staircases and, you know, iron spindles. And so, you know, it's, and stuff is not the problem. It's what's sacrificed to get things. You see? This is why some people who, are, make, who make $40,000 a year are more financially free than people who make $400,000 a year. This is the freedom that God gives us. Another reason why people overwork is to find their identity and self-fulfillment. Some of the most successful people are the most miserable because they keep uh, pursuing purpose and fulfillment from their work because they're convinced that it can be found there. And because of that, they, they, they never rest. They keep working overtime. They, they even begin to mistreat their employees to get more out of them. They begin stealing, bending the rules, breaking the law just to get ahead. The problem with this is that sometimes we look to our work, be it volunteer, paid, or even work at the church, to do for us what it can never do, which is to grant us purpose and fulfillment. Only God can do that. Much like the Pharisees, they're looking to the law to give them fulfillment. They're looking to the wrong place. That's God's place. Only he can do that. And so we need to rest in what only God can do for us. And so what does rest look like? And I think uh, this is helpful for us. That I'm, I'm really beginning to try to learn this myself. Rest allows us to explore ourselves as image bearers. We are, we are not um, bound today because Christ has fulfilled the law, so we can rest at any time, but we need to find rest. So if we continually work, we'll, miss, uh, we'll, we'll be miserable because we begin to treat ourselves like machines, working and working and working, and our minds and our bodies will begin to break down. So how do you actually rest? Biblically speaking, there's four things I want to share with you. Uh, the first thing is breaking away from our primary task or responsibility. Breaking away from that primary task or responsibility because this rest provides us an opportunity to exercise a different part of our humanity that we don't often uh, express in our work. And again, remember, I'm talking about work as a job that you get paid to do, or I'm talking about your volunteer work at the church or in your communities or as a mom or as a dad. So so whatever it is, fill fill that in. So don't get locked into like a a job, you know? And so, uh, so if you're doing something primarily, you have to break away from that. And um, I, was, I quoted Pastor Tony on this before, last service, but then he told me it was Rick Warren in the middle of the service. And so uh, Rick Warren once has said, if you work with your mind, you have to rest with your hands, and, you know, and vice versa. If you, you know, and so the musician who's a concert pianist, they might want to come home and, and do a garden. But the person who's a farmer, they might want to come home and play the piano, Getting out of the thing that's your primary task or responsibility is the first thing, the first item to to, uh, pursue rest. The second one is connecting with our creator. The daily grind can easily pull us away from our anchor in Christ, and our dreams can uh, be influenced more by the world than by our faith. 
We have to reconnect with our Savior and tell us the true story of who we are. Reminding ourselves that I am not my productivity. My value is not quantified in my paycheck. My worth is not determined by my manager. I am an image bearer. God gives me value. In him, I am accepted. This story is so beautiful. Remember who you are. Time with the Lord will do that for you. Also, enjoying God's creation. I like how German philosopher uh, Joseph Pfeiffer says it this way. He says, leisure is not the mere absence of work, but an attitude of mind and soul in which you are able to complete and enjoy things as they are in themselves. Without regard to their value or their immediate utility, the work-obsessed mind, as in our Western culture, tends to look at everything in terms of efficiency, value, and speed. But there must be the ability to enjoy the most simple and ordinary aspects of life, even the ones that are, just strictly, that are not strictly useful, but are just enjoyable. Go outside and look at the trees. Look how they rustle back and forth in the wind. Where does the wind come from? I don't know, but God does. Stand on the edge of the ocean, look out on it, and feel small. And say, but there is a God who is mighty, who is not letting this, this ocean you know, go over its bounds. Where does a bird get their food? How are the lilies dressed so profoundly? This is an act of God himself. This is the wonder of God. Sit back and experience that for a second. We also Sabbath with physical rest. We rest because our bodies need it. It reminds us that we are not God, and it causes us to be dependent on him. I think many of us overwork because we have a lack of trust in God and an overdependence on ourselves. We know who we are. We are fickle, frail, inconsistent, yet we try to pit ourselves against the God who created the heavens and the earth. It sounds foolish when you say it, but that's how we act. So we got to fix ourselves. <laughs> and again, I'm talking to myself too. When we rest, we are confessing that we are not God. There is a God. And so there's a myth that's running rampant in many Christian circles that you're not being used by God unless you are just dog tired. And I think that's a lie. I think that we've, we've replaced, you know, doing something for God for being with him. And we have to get this right I'm not saying that we sit around and do nothing, but I, I, I think that we have to be with God in order to do something for him that actually matters. When we rest, we become less of a slave to our bottom line. We, can, we become less of a slave to the perceptions of others, and when we rest, we become, we're not slaves to the approval that comes from our boss or our colleagues. Be free today. Be free in Christ so if we're able to find deep rest in Christ, then that vacation to Fiji can actually be a vacation. Because sometimes you can go to Fiji and you got the workplace on your mind because you're the problem. You take it with you. We have to find our rest in Christ. Then we can actually go somewhere and rest and enjoy that white sand and enjoy the little, the houses that they have that are over the water. Have you guys seen those with the glass bottoms? I want to go to those one day. Um, and so maybe one day I can enjoy it after I take heed of this. <laughs> so, 
Uh, so anyway, but there's so much here in these first five verses, but now let's transition to the second little story here, because in verse, verses 6 to 11, there is a transition to a, another encounter on the Sabbath, and this, this sort of encounter, it really um, is a capstone of three controversies that we see beginning in chapter 5, verse 33, and so here is the scene, and it's painted uh, very clearly for us in verses 6 to 8. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him, being Jesus, to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so they might find a reason to accuse him. And so much like in the first couple of verses, uh, the Pharisees, they were present, and they were not here to learn from Jesus, but to increase their list of accusations against him. And so and, uh, as in a way that only Jesus can do, he didn't disappoint. And so we have verses 8 to 9. He says this, uh, but, he, but he knew their thoughts, the thoughts of the Pharisees trying to, to corner him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come, stand here. And he rose and he stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? There's a New Testament scholar by the name, by the name of James Edwards who it's very helpful here in, as I was thinking about these verses. He says this, quote, For Jesus, human need poses a moral imperative that supersedes their religiosity. So, and Edwards continues, A litmus test of true versus false religion is its response to injustice. And the test of all theology and morality is either uh, passed or failed by one's response to the weakest and to the... Uh, the most defenseless members of society. And so now let's, and with that in mind, let's read what Jesus did, does in verses 10 and 11. He says, so after looking around at them, all he said to them, or uh, <laughs> I did this last time, I couldn't read this before. So, and after looking around at them, all he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so. And his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. And so uh, basically in, the, in, the, in verse 6, it talks about the fact that uh, a man who had his right hand withered, that right hand is not just an arbitrary detail, but in the time that this text was written, it functions as a, a very significant part of being around and doing business in the ancient world. So Jesus was basically restoring him to usefulness and gainful employment and social propriety in that time. And so Jesus was looking to help restore this man. And so this is the same pattern that we should follow as Christians. There's an imperative for us to demonstrate the, the restorative implications of the gospel in the world in which we live. And so, and it supersedes any sort of religiosity that anyone might press upon us. And so this is why we send missionaries, and we are missionaries ourselves in the triangle, as we are proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we also demonstrate the power of the gospel in both word and deed. We demonstrate the, the righteousness and justice of, of God through all sorts of restorative actions. And so this is what Jesus was doing. He's saying, I'm not going to be bound by law, the law that you guys have, and your interpretations of that law. I'm going to be bound by love. And that's what we should be bound by as well. 
So in this situation, the leaders kept a close eye on Jesus because a man with a withered hand didn't qualify for God to, or Jesus to do something on the Sabbath day. So if you were dying, then it qualified for a healing on the Sabbath day. But a man with a withered hand, he's been that way for a while. And so this man could have lived till the next day. Therefore, Jesus was violating the Sabbath rules that the Pharisees created. And so the whole time I was reading this passage, I need to be honest. I was like, but who's really working here? Because the Pharisees are working real hard to get their list together to accuse Jesus. Snooping around, trying to figure out, oh, Jesus is doing this. Oh, check it out. Come on, boys, let's go. Jesus is about to, man with the hand. So I'm like, what, what is going on? They're the ones working. And by contrast, Jesus was like, hey, stretch out your hand. And with the word, he healed them. We don't just serve a physician. We serve the great physician. And the man just had to stretch out his hand, and then God healed him. So Jesus superseded their little, you know, simple rules about who's working and who's not working because he said a word, and the man was healed. Stretch out your hand. <laughs> the, the Pharisees are messing with the wrong guy today. And so it's also important for us to note that the man's infirmity could only be healed by revealing it to Jesus. Faith is a risk, but that Jesus is worthy of. So he is trustworthy. Many of us walk around holding things close to us that we're embarrassed of. Well, it might not be a withered hand. It might be something that you've done in your past. Jesus is trustworthy. He's not here to condemn you. He wants to redeem you. So, you know, let, let us help you with that thing you're struggling with. Let's submit it to Jesus' authority together. You know, we have to reveal it to him, stretch out your hand, show him, and so he can fix what's going on. He is compassionate beyond all measure. I think sometimes I, I, I throw my own sort of assumed actions upon God. And to say, if I was God, I'd be sick of me doing all these things I do. But God is full of compassion, full of love, ready to lavish that upon you. Let him see what you've done. Confess it. He already knows. He sees you. But confess it and repent to the one who can actually make you free. So Jesus' compassion in this, in this story uh, made the man with the shriveled hand free, but it was costly to Jesus himself. While the man's hand was restored, Jesus' opponents, they were filled with fury, as the text says, or it says filled with madness in other translations. And so uh, this means that Jesus is now the object of their destructive rage. And so uh, Jesus has been, you know, doing this thing for a while now. You know, he was, you know, violating the Sabbath all the time because he's Lord of the Sabbath. He was fraternizing with lepers and sinners uh, we see this in chapter 5, uh, just a moment ago, in our last chapter. And also we see this in chapters uh, 27 to 32. Uh, we see him as disregarding rabbinic customs and uh, presuming, being so presumptuous that he would forgive sins. So this is just part of the list that the Pharisees were sort of, you know, checking off to, for Jesus. And they were trying to figure out what they were going to do to him. And eventually they would kill him. And, but each of these instances is Jesus displaying his lordship, his love, and his compassion to people. And this is a wonderful gift to us to receive. This is the Lord, the Lord of the Sabbath, the one who gives us rest, 
the one who gives us rest from our ailments, the one who gives us rest from our fears, the one who gives us rest from ourselves. Be free today. So I have a couple uh, of application questions, but they all are rooted in one single question. Who is Je- or how do you see Jesus? Is he the Lord of life or a problem to be dealt with? And if he's the Lord of your life, here's the questions that I think you can begin to ask yourself, ask each other, uh, you know, ask you in your growth groups or in your car on the way home or throughout the week is, uh, the first question is this, do you find your rest in him or are you constantly trying to prove your worth to yourself and others? Do you labor to actually prove that you're worthy of anything? There's a lot to be said, but I'll continue. Do, not find your posi- or do you find your, your, your position secure in the one who has granted you salvation, or are you constantly trying to earn favor with God through your works? There is no way that we can earn our favor with God through works. Our works are like filthy rags, Scripture says. There's nothing that you can do to justify Christ, you know, the, the God-man dying for you. But he did. And that's good news. So rest in the one who has done that for you, not in your own works. Thirdly, do you, do you follow his loving example of loving those in need, as we saw with the man with the withered hand? So do we, do we respond out of love or obligation? Well, respond with love, which is what Jesus did. So these are questions that can be helpful for us to just work through to apply this text to our lives. But if you're here today uh, and you're not a Christian, I'm here to tell you that there is a Savior who is willing and ready to receive you. If you're, if you're a person here who is trying to find rest in so many different places, that, that, that journey for rest and that pursuit of rest has just taken you all around and has beat you up so badly, there is one whom you can find rest in today. And his yoke is light. Your accomplishments will be cold comfort on a lonely night. Your bank account will not give you the kind of rest you need when that diagnosis comes. Your business reputation will not grant you entry into the kingdom. There is only one who can do that. And not only can he give you rest now, This rest that we even have a a, a small bit of here stretches all the way into eternity in his kingdom. So the restlessness that you find now, the thing that drives you to push and to dig in and to keep going, is that thing Christ or is it something else? And I'm not getting against work. Christians should be the best workers out there because we actually have a motivation to do work well. But what I'm asking is, have you found the Lord of the Sabbath. There's only one person that, that, who is worthy of that place, and his name is Jesus, who, we, who we've seen today. Please play with me. Father, you are worthy of our worship, our work, and our rest. God, we thank you for being Lord of the Sabbath. We, we're grateful that you haven't uh, come here to put a yoke on us, but to make us free. And God, the freedom in you is so sweet. And I pray that we will experience more of that day by day by day. God, we look forward to a time when we won't have this tension anymore in your kingdom. And I pray that everyone under the sound of my voice would have cried out to Jesus Christ as Lord for their sins because he has died and rose from the dead for all the things that have actually broken the law of God. 
God, we thank you for being worthy and holy and righteous and faithful and just. God, you are everything to us, and for that we give you praise uh, in your name. Amen.